Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage, the third programme in a three-part series talking with the late Michael Wright, who died last month at the age of 105. Michael Wright was born in Hong Kong in 1912 and, as a young boy, went to the peak school with his brother in a sedan chair. In the previous two programmes, he's told me about his privileged childhood here and how he later was a volunteer officer in the Battle of Hong Kong after the Japanese military invasion in December 1941. He would later become become a prisoner of war. These interviews were conducted at his home in September last year, just after his 105th birthday. In this week's final programme, Michael Wright tells me about Hong Kong's post-war public housing and the urgent need for flats, schools, clinics and other infrastructure as tens of thousands of refugees came in from mainland China following the Communist Revolution in 1949. Almost bursting at the seams, the colony of Hong Kong is invaded by new floods of would-be refugees from the mainland of China. As there's only shantytown accommodation for many of the million refugees already in Hong Kong, there's no room for the 4,000 a day who have tried to come in lately. Helicopters fly at first light, looking for Chinese who have entered the colony by night. Police round them up, for they've got to be sent back. So limited are the resources of Hong Kong, that if the refugees were allowed to stay, famine and cholera might result. Yet as lorries take them back to the frontier, the Chinese have the sympathy of the people. Food, cigarettes and medicines are showered on them. Fear of approaching famine is thought to be the reason why so many have fled from their native South China which normally no more than 50 a day are allowed to leave. Now the communist farming system has all but broken down and hundreds of thousands are hungry victims of the Red Series. Going back to pre-war, when I was in the building's ordnance office, that's a section of the PWD that looked after dangerous buildings and overcrowding. And so I spent quite a lot of my two or three years and I visited an awful lot of these tenement houses, shop houses, and saw the, the, the overcrowding and the very unhealthy conditions under which they lived. And in the prison camp, I spent... We had plenty of time on our hands, but luckily I was an officer, so I was at an officer's camp, and so we didn't have to go out on working parties, so you could spend your time thinking and <laughs> reorganising the world afterwards. And so I really gave a lot of thought to, to this in my time in the prison camp. And uh, when I got back to Hong Kong, I was uh, then I'd been transferred to the architectural office. And Bishop Hall, who was a great critic of the Hong Kong government, and he was very keen on improving housing. And there was also a guy, Dougie Craig, who was a Colonel Craig, who had come out as a soldier and then came back to Hong Kong after he also was very keen. And the Hong Kong Housing Society was set up with Craig as chairman and they had a professional housing manager recruited from UK and I was asked to be on the committee so I got involved very early on with the Hong Kong Housing Society in building this low-cost housing. They got the land for nothing but it was usually hillside and we had to pay for the site formation. How do you mean you got the site for free? Hong Kong 
still, I think I'm correct in saying, is a low-tax area because they're flogging land all the time. Virgin land is put up for auction with an annual rent, but a big capital sum. And so most, a lot of the revenue for Hong Kong in my time came in from land sales and rental from land, and I think it probably still is. When you first started public housing post-war, how did you decide where to put it? Well, it wasn't my business. That was the business of the permanent staff of the Hong Kong Housing Society who would negotiate with the government and the Crown Lands Office is part of the Public Works Department. And they would, usually it was Virgin Hillside they got and had to form the land. And one particular building I remember well is Radakchun, which is the one that was named after me. And it was a terrible sight. And I can remember, you know, I was still involved as director of Project Work. And I said, this, is, this can't, be, can't be developed. It's an awful hillside. And out of this impossible site, he produced what became the site for Radakchun. So and that was named after you? That was named after me, yeah. After I retired... So your role in early public housing was as an architect? As an architect, I didn't design any of the schemes because we always appointed a private architect. But, you know, we would comment on the plans, so I was involved, a backroom boy in a way, working with the architects and telling them what we wanted to do. There were one or two experiments we tried, and not all of them successful. I think there was one where it's round a courtyard with an internal light well, and I don't think that was successful. What they tended to be was a corridor at the back and then the buildings were in resettlement. The corridor came down the middle and there were rooms on both sides. So uh, you were involved in the early resettlement flats? Uh, yes, yes. So can you describe those to me? Resettlement flats were born out of the Shepkit May fire. And in fact, I wasn't in Hong Kong at the time. I was on leave when the actual fire took place. The acting chief architect, a man called George Norton, who was a very, very good, practical architect, like me, I like to think. I was what I call the short-haired architect. I wasn't arty crafty, and I believed in getting on with the job and not a lot of fancy stuff. And George was the same. And the first thing was that they built what were called bowering bungalows. Bowering was the director of public works. And the bowering bungalows were, in fact, two-storey buildings walk up and they just had a central corridor and rooms on both sides to get people off the street. And at the same time, they, these were being built to design the six-storey blocks, which were very basic. And they had a central corridor, balconies all the way round. But I think they were 12, 12 feet, 12 by 10. I think the standard thing was 25 square feet per person. And the idea was for, for five people, I think. I, I can't remember the full details now. But there were single rooms entered from a central corridor with not windows, just wooden shutters. And then, again, they had the inevitable communal lavatories. And I think no cooking facilities. I think the cooking they did on the balcony. And they were very, very crude. And we turned them out at a... Well, they could be, but they're so basic, they only took about four weeks to build. You know, they could do about two stories a week. The bare concrete walls, there's nothing fancy about them, no finishing, no plaster. And I can remember that when we built quite a few, Bishop Hall, who I mentioned earlier on, was very um, critical of the Hong Kong government in many ways. And he expressed a wish to be shown round resettlement blocks. And I thought this was going to be a bit difficult. 
and I took him round and we spent the half an hour going around because we had a school on the top rooftop we had a school at each end and between the schools there was a playground on the roof for the children and what area was that what district uh, anywhere where there was a fire so it started off in Shepkit May where the fire had been and I think we cut down the hillside and formed most of them were in the hillside sites where we formed site formation and one of them near Shepkit Bay we found an ancient tomb which is quite interesting I can remember I think the clerk of work said they'd found this tunnel going through in a nice little brick tomb and then commissioner for resettlement so forget about the damn thing put it down but I said no we can't and so we had to not build that block and I think the tomb is still there and quite a, a tourist attraction going back to Bishop Hall took him round and in the end he said this is the best thing the Hong Kong government has ever done you know, again because it's better getting to people off the street and I think there continues to be quite a big black market in um, resettlement flats, you know, I think. Black market? Yeah, I think some people who would, uh, would in proper accommodation, would sublet their flats and then get into a resettlement flat, which they get for nothing. But then they would take the money for their, for their own flat. So that was the early resettlement flats post-war? We must have built, I would say... A hundred resettlement flats, resettlement blocks. No, we had them all uh, because we went on building them for ten years, and they were still being built when I left. Across Hong Kong Harbour, beyond Kowloon, lies Red China, whose refugees swarm in increasing numbers into the British colony, fleeing to the island to escape life in Red China. They gain liberty, but bring a great problem with them. Where are they going to be housed? Food supplies, for the time being, come from sources abroad. Innumerable harbour craft, from large junks to sampans, are the permanent homes of close on 150,000 people, living on one of the world's finest natural harbours, which annually accommodates nearly 30 million tonnes of shipping. Marking the refugee resettlement area are large blocks of flats built for them by the authorities. Yet, as the newcomers form more than one-third of Hong Kong's now swollen population of nearly three millions, even the new buildings are not enough, and still more and more Chinese pour in. So great is the press on dwelling space that shanty towns house a great many. And anyway, they hope to graduate to the apartment houses eventually. The latest arrivals often depend for food on charity organizations. 25,000 people are registered at the Bishop Ford Food Center, a Catholic relief service. Small wonder that one of the best-loved men working among the refugees is Father Howard True. It has been said that many people from the mainland are undesirables, some even criminal. But making allowance for that, the great majority come to Hong Kong to escape tyranny. And then as fast as we cleared the, an area of the hillside, the Scots are still, the refugees are still coming in from China. And um, so the squatting was going on the whole time. And so there was a continual need for these resettlement blocks to house the people, to avoid, really to avoid them settling on the, on, the, on the land. Yes, and certainly the safety of the new... Yeah, they didn't want another fire like the Shepkit Bay one because, I mean, they were, I mean, they were very, very dangerous, these squatter areas. 
because they had electricity there, they had exposed wires, they were very, very dangerous. They had other fires, but never as bad as the Shepkit Bay one. So you were involved after Shepkit Bay fire in at Christmas 1953. You would then continue on with early resettlement flats for we about... Went, we went on, we went out with the field. We had a special unit of the PWD, a man called Colin Bramble was the architect in charge. Not only did we have you know, the resettlement areas, but also a slightly better stage called government no-cost housing, which was, again, one room with a kitchen and a WC, and we built many dozen of these no-cost housing flats. And then we had a slightly higher one, and they, again, had a slightly improved the one room with the WC and the, uh, the shower and the kitchen. Because, of course, in the early resettlement flats, they'd have had to do some of that outside. There was just communal lavatories and um, communal... And in fact, I think washing, I think, was left to them to sort it out. No, they had taps, I think, there, and, and they could wash in their own rooms. Yes, yeah, not easy. They were very, very, very basic, but at least it got them off the, off the hillside. Yes, and I think that would have been very challenging for the government at that time. You've got uh, post-49, the the revolution in China, you've got these tens of thousands of people coming in. Coming in. So the rule was that if they got into Hong Kong, they were allowed to stay. If they were caught trying to get into Hong Kong, they were returned to China. Very difficult times. Yeah, they were very uh, exciting times because, you know, apart from the ordinary... um, building work in the the architectural office with the mainly schools and clinics and that kind of thing. There was this almost size environment where we had a separate unit really with the PWD who were concentrating on resettlement and low-cost housing. Because apart from that, as the population of Hong Kong increased and increased very quickly, and also the demand were, were, were more facilities it wasn't very fine architecture. We had a standard plan for a secondary school, a standard plan for a primary school, a standard plan for a police station, a standard plan for a, a clinic, and we would churn these things out as fast as they were needed. Did you manage to get any weekends off? <laughs> well, it was other people did the work. I did the brain work. But I, I, worked, I worked hard, but I enjoyed it. Yeah, challenging times, and I'm sure, but all of you would have been... I think it would have also, if you were able to get these people into better quality housing, if you were able to get children into school... It was satisfying to go. It was a job I I really loved. I I, I was very lucky in having a job that I really enjoyed. So you were doing schools... School. We did one or two prestigious jobs, like the City Hall. So that would have been 1955? Uh, yes. Now, so the, one of the architects of the City Hall is still around, Ron Phillips, and I see quite a bit of him, actually. He, um, he comes up here quite often. We had one or two very good architects, like Phillips. The increased population and increased demands for more facilities, that the schools in particular... Um, secondary schools and primary schools. We must have built 50, 60 of them, I should think. I was appointed chief architect. I, you know, I was a, a working architect in the period. And then um, th- then I got moved to headquarters in about 1956. So in about five years, I was actually chief architect working in the architectural office and I got promoted to assistant director. I was still involved, but not with the hands-on as I was as chief architect. Communist Chinese vessels laden with foodstuffs arrive at the British Crown Colony of Hong Kong. 
Despite widespread famine on the mainland, the Reds are continuing their food export trade. An estimated $10 million worth of food is sold in Hong Kong each month. Vegetables and canned goods from Red China line the shelves of retail stores. And there are plenty of customers for them, too. next is that the customers hurry to the post offices to mail the food and relief packages back to needy relatives in Red China. Having already collected foreign exchange money on the sale of the food, the communists now will collect import duty on the same food as it heads to destinations in the various provinces of China. The British Post Office Department handles the food packages as they would any other mail under the rules of the International Postal Union, and they're swamped with some 50,000 packages a day. Knowing that most Chinese refugees in Hong Kong have left relatives behind and will continue to share with them whatever they have, the Red Chinese regime can figure on food profits while there's famine in the land. So you built or helped, uh, you were involved in the building of schools, public housing, public city housing, hall. police stations, clinics, um, there are two sorts of clinics, and uh, quite a lot of people. That, uh, does the name Teng Chugin mean anything to you? Teng Chugin ran the Kowloon Motor Bus Company, and he was a, a very, very rich man, and he was always giving money to the government for good works, for building works. And I remember the financial secretary complaining. He said, <laughs> he's, after, he's after a knighthood. <laughs> And then he keeps on giving, giving this money. It's not just in the cost of the building, but it's the cost of running them after they're, after they're finished. You know, and they couldn't refuse these offers of Teng Sugin for money for a clinic or something or other. In the end, he got his knighthood, but not from Hong Kong. He um, gave the money for an Air Force Museum at Hendon, and he got it from the UK government. So he ended up anyway as so so Tang Su Kim. His grandson just recently died. Yeah. Yes, so David Tang. Right. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Well, Tang Su Kim was really quite a character. Always wore Chinese clothes, wrote, spoke perfect English, always wore Chinese clothes. Did you have a mix of public-private financing for some of these buildings then? Uh, well, there were quite, quite a few people like Tang Su Kim. The Jockey Club gave quite a lot of money for swimming pools and clinics. Describe to me, you were a prisoner of war here after the defence of Hong Kong in 1945. Describe to me what Hong Kong looked like. Well, it looked like after the war. It wasn't all that badly damaged, actually. There was a, a obviously during the Battle of Hong Kong, there was a certain amount of shedding, a certain amount of bombing, and post during the Japanese occupation, there was a fair amount of borrowing from American planes. It was great at the prison camp when we had these high-level bombers coming over for American ones. We all had to lie on the floor and not allowed to. We had to lie on the floor with our eyes down because the Japanese were frightened. We would be signalling to the pilots, I think. But there wasn't really all that bomb damage and war damage in Hong Kong. But it was more neg neglect and there was an acute shortage of cooking materials. And what happened was any wood, the population of Hong Kong decreased to about 500,000 during the Japanese occupation. We could see them from the prison camp all moving out, walking through the new territories, the road going to Taipo. We could see them from, from our prison camp all walking along this road, getting out of, out of Hong Kong. So I think the population was about half a million when the war finished. I, I stayed on. I was young. I was quite well. And I stayed on for 
three months after the war finished and it was a very, very exciting time to see Hong Kong um, coming to life again. I, about three of us stayed on, you know, and set up a, a, a works department and tried to rehabilitate, started rehabilitating Hong, Hong Kong and seeing it come to life again. Um, and it was extraordinary how the Japanese had just allowed it to go to wreck and ruin. They must have, certainly in the early part of the war, they must have expected to be there for good because things went very much their way. But the peak was, of course, uninhabited. All the buildings on the peak had been um, looted and all the woodwork taken out, the, the bare walls were there. But there were um, landslides, there were magazine gaps, there were trees growing out of the landslide. They made no attempt to clear the, clear the roads, so it was just at low, low levels that um, everything was, was concentrated. And it was really very exciting to start clearing up. There were no cars. They, they took all the cars out of Hong Kong and up to Japan. And the only way to get around was either by walking or riding pillion on a bicycle or on a scooter. And I can remember walking. I had a friend, one of the nurses at Queen Mary Hospital. And I remember walking to Bok um, the Queen Mary Hospital, to see this nursing sister. And uh, coming back, I was getting a bit tired, and I had a little boy in a homemade scooter with a w- wooden platform, and he sat on the... F- and quite a lot of way down from Pockford Road was downhill. And I got on back on this scooter where to put my hands on his shoulder, and he <laughs> three-wheeled about half a mile, three-quarters of a down, down the road to uh, to the urban area. They just had to walk around uh, the little road, little gap road or something. I stayed, stayed for three months after the Japanese surrender, and it was a very interesting, very exciting time. So you were very much helping with um, getting Hong Kong back getting on its feet. Hong Kong back again, and, we, and again, not so much building new buildings, rehabilitating old ones, and also in. Uh, in central, in Hong Kong itself, in the urban area, the Chinese area. We weren't worried about the peak, because that was, there were no Europeans there. We concentrated on the, on the lower levels to get this basic housing for, for, the, for the ordinary Chinese residents working again. So how did you manage to do that? I mean, was there sand? Was there, you know, concrete? Was uh, there... We were very lucky in that um, there was an aircraft carrier on the way to Okinawa, to build another airfield and when the Japanese surrendered this, this aircraft carrier with all this building material was stopped in Hong Kong and so we were able to... Um, an actual aircraft carrier? Yes, an aircraft carrier. We were able to get cement and... Con- and ag- well, aggregate's always available in Hong Kong. There's plenty of stone in Hong Kong. But to get the cement from there and started rehabilitating fairly quickly. So you were here for three months, and then did you go to the UK? Then I went to the UK for, for, for a holiday, and I was there for six months, and then went, and went back to Hong Kong. So you married soon after the war finished. Can you tell me about your wife? Well, she was in the, day, she was in the nursing sister in England, and then during the, uh, when the war broke out, she was in the Navy. And when the European war finished, they were expecting the Japanese war to go on for a considerably longer time and a number of nurses were shipped off to Australia to set up a British naval hospital in Australia 
And so she was one of about eight, I think, two sisters and six nurses who went out to Australia and setting up this hospital, and or had set it up when the war suddenly finished. I mean, the war finished very unexpectedly, uh, quickly. The, the, the authorities were worried about the state of affairs in Hong Kong, because Hong Kong had been very much completely cut off, never knew what it was going to be like. And so she volunteered to come up to Hong Kong to see the state of affairs in Hong Kong. Uh, arrived in Hong Kong when the, we were still in the prison camp to uh, provide assistance to the nursing. And after I went back to Hong Kong in 1946, I met her. And what was her name? Her, her name was Surtees, Ethel Surtees. Good old-fashioned name, Surtees. Uh, so is that, Ethel is a certain era, I think, too. She hated the name of Ethel. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody had a girlfriend among the naval nursing sisters, and he said he go to the Hong Kong Hotel to have dinner, and would I join them? And his girlfriend would, would bring another friend. So we met on a morning on a brown date. Now, one of the interviews I've done for Hong Kong Heritage is uh, Nancy Kwan, who played Susie Wong. Yes, I knew her father, Honky, was a, a fellow architect. And um, we, we were great friends. We, um, I won't say... He, he, I was seriously sort of living with him. Um, his first wife was um, a European, and Nancy was often half. And then I think the first wife left him for a German, came out to Hong Kong with him, and then left him... And then he married a Chinese girl, and I think was much happier. But he was a great gambler, and I remember Honky going to call on him once, and he said, "Come on, Michael, come and join us." I said, "Honky," and oh, he said, "I'll carry you." It was not peanuts; they were taking the thousands of dollars at a time going. I said, "No, Honky." He was. I think he ended up by being a bit broke because he was a great gambler. Was so a very nice man. So you had to, in Hong Kong, you had to avoid gambling. Uh, what were your hobbies? <laughs> well, that's certainly not gambling. I was a bad cricketer. <laughs> I lived in digs for a time in Kowloon and Armin buildings. I had a big room with a big enclosed veranda and I had my bed on the veranda. had a very nice living room. I had to share a bathroom with one other family. And um, and it, I was there for six or seven months when the war broke out. Of course, a lot of the uh, properties in Hong Kong were empty because they'd been occupied by Germans. And so four of us took a flat in Kennedy Road um, and um, lived there. And from there we moved to um, Conduit Road. So do you mean it'd been occupied by Germans... When? By, by, by Germans who left Hong Kong when the war broke out, Second World War. And I, I went down, actually, I had a, a Portuguese friend, and went down to Macau, um, must have been about April 1940, when the phony war was still on, before the serious war started. And there were a lot of these Germans who had left Hong Kong and had taken refuge in Macau. How do you mean phony war? Well, the, for the war broke out in September '39, but for the next first six months there was the odd air raid, but there was no real fighting. Everybody was getting into position, I think, and then suddenly in April 1940, you know, the, the, the blitz happened and Dunkirk and the superior of the Germans. So, but during that peaceful time, going down and having um, 
lunch with these with these Germans in in, in Macau, and they were all very matey and friendly, and then shortly after that, of course, I suppose they stayed on in Macau. I don't know what happened to them after the war, but there was a big, but quite a big German community in in Hong Kong. You know, shipping. So we were, we went from being a bad cricketer. <laughs> and, and other hobbies were... Other hobbies, I played hockey. I've always been a reader. And, and I also had Chinese. I learned Chinese. I had a Chinese teacher come um, twice a week in the early morning. My thanks to the late Michael Wright, the father of early public housing, ensuring dignity and privacy for housing residents. He died last month at the age of 105. Michael Wright would later become director of public works, building tunnels, planning the MTR and overseeing water resources and rationing in the 1960s. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.